When we buy something, we like to get a guarantee with it, right? I mean, it gives us confidence as a buyer. And when the manufacturer provides a strong guarantee, it demonstrates their confidence in their product and their commitment to that product and also to you and me as the customer. Well, if we want a guarantee for things that we buy, how much more do we want a guarantee for our eternal destiny? And God has done exactly that for us. He has actually given us a double guarantee. And that's what we're going to be talking about today in the passage. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, which was the last verse that we looked at last time, it says, We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. It encourages us here to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Well, now in verses 13 through 20 of Hebrews 6, which is the passage we'll be looking at today, the author, he builds on that idea. In verses 13 through 15, Abraham is presented as an example of the kind of person that we want to imitate, follow, mimic, copy, who, through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. And then in verses 16 through 18, he talks about what God has done to give us confidence in the promises that he's made to us. And then in verses 19 and 20, he talks about the certainty of the hope that we have in the promises of God that he's given us and how they are tied to Jesus Christ. Well, what are these promises being talked about that God has made to us? Our salvation and all that's included, which is all found in Jesus Christ. Salvation is far more than fire insurance. It is forgiveness for our sins, the removal of our guilt before God, being adopted into God's family as brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, receiving a new nature like that of Jesus, being transformed into His image, eternal life in heaven. You may remember that in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, the word rest is used as a metaphor for salvation. Rest describes the character of the life that salvation creates in us. It's not a long celestial nap. Rest describes a life of peace and joy and wholeness and purpose. The idea of rest and promise and salvation are all closely tied together in the letter of Hebrews. We have the promise of entering into God's rest, the promise of salvation, the promise of full and complete rescue, redemption, restoration, and renewal. See, every good thing mentioned in the letter of Hebrews is part of our salvation. And our salvation has both a now and a then component to it. As soon as we come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we begin to experience salvation. The one who has received Jesus Christ as Savior and is now following Him is being saved as they walk with the Lord in this life. And we also have our final salvation to look forward to. We are saved, we are being saved, and we are going to be saved. All of these are true for the Christian. These promises of God 
they take faith and patience to inherit. First, these are promises that not everyone in this life even cares about. These are promises that are of a spiritual nature. These are promises that have to do with the city of God. These are promises that have to do with the realm of eternity rather than the temporal. Not everyone has an eye for the unseen spiritual eternal. Not everyone cares about it. Not everyone has a heart for the things of God. Only the person with faith appreciates these things enough to pursue them and to long for their fulfillment. Chapter 11 of Hebrews, nicknamed the Hall of Fame of Faith, is devoted to this very subject of people with faith who see and seek after the promises of God. Second, these promises take a trusting faith in the promise maker. A promise is only as good as the one who makes the promise. I mean, I could promise to give each of you $1 million today on your way out of church. But you would be a fool to put any confidence in my promise to do that. I have no way of fulfilling that promise. So my promise to you is worthless. God, on the other hand, has the ability to fulfill all of the promises that he makes to us. Faith is how we express our confidence in God that he can and will keep his promises. Patience is required as we wait for the fulfillment of the promises. Many of these promises are of a kind that will not be realized in this life. Many of these promises are of a kind that are not clearly tangible in the natural realm that we live in. Patience is needed to continue to hang on to the unseen and the still-to-come promises of God. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Well, with all of that as an introduction, let's begin looking at the passage in verse 13 of Hebrews 6. It says, When God made his promise to Abraham... Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. So you see, the writer gives us Abraham as an example of the kind of person that he's talking about in verse 12, who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Abraham was 75 years old when God first made his promise to him that he would multiply his descendants, making him into a great nation of people, and then bless the whole world through him. Abraham then had to wait 25 years before he and his wife Sarah finally had a child, the sign marking the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to him, Isaac, was born when Abraham was 100 years old and his wife Sarah was 90 years old. Abraham had to wait another 60 years, six zero, 60 years after the birth of his son Isaac to see the birth of his grandsons, Jacob and Esau. 
Verse 15 says here, And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. After waiting patiently. I think we would all consider that a gross understatement. Patiently waiting has become a lost art in our culture, hasn't it? I mean, we live for the immediate. We want everything right now. I mean, if we have to wait more than 30 seconds in the, in the drive-through at Taco Bell to get a burrito, we're already annoyed and we're getting edgy. Abraham and those like him are the ones we want to imitate rather than the manic characters of our culture. Abraham and those like him have a patient faith in their God which carries them through life. Consider, too, how much of the promise was fulfilled before Abraham left this life. Of the nation of people promised to come from him, Abraham saw his son Isaac born and his grandson Jacob born. Not exactly a nation of people. But Abraham's faith in the Lord's promise remained steadfast. The writer said something in verse 13 that he's now going to expand on in verses 16 through 18. He wrote, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. To give Abraham as much confidence as possible in the promises that God made to him, God swore by the greatest thing in existence, himself. To, to convince another person that they're absolutely committed to keeping their word about something, some people will say, I swear to God, I will do it. We've all heard people say stuff like that. Well, God, he effectively does that for Abraham. But rather than God saying, I swear to God, I will do it, he says, I swear by myself, I will do it. Verse 16 says, People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. God wants us to be as confident as possible in the promises that he's made to us. He wants us to be absolutely convinced that he is going to keep his promises. So, by two unchangeable things, it tells us here, he has established his promises. What does it mean for something to be unchangeable? It means something that never changes. It never disappears. It, it never forgets. It lasts forever. What it was yesterday is what it will be today, and what it is today, it will be tomorrow. Unchangeable. Well, what are these two unchangeable things by which God has established the certainty of his promises to us? First, we have the character of God in his word. He said it. And that is unchangeable in itself because it says here, it is impossible for God to lie. This is a statement not simply about what God said, 
but about God's character. God always tells the truth. He never deceives. His word is absolutely reliable. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. It's as good as done because of the character of the one who has made the promise. Are you familiar with the old saying, my word is my bond? It's not something that's said very much anymore, but there was a time when it was a very important declaration that that a person would make. My word is my bond. It meant the person will keep their word. They will do what they have said they would do. They are binding themselves to what they have said, promising to do it. Well, the Lord says to us, my word is my bond. Isaiah 48, it says, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Psalm 119, 89, Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Well, second, God has guaranteed the promise with an oath. In ancient times, a person would make an oath to confirm what they have said. And it would put an end to all questioning, all arguments. An oath was an unchangeable thing in ancient times. Today's approximation to this would be a signed contractual agreement. God has signed on the dotted line of a contract so that we can know for sure without any doubt that he's going to fulfill his promises to us, that he's going to honor his word. Now, God, he didn't need to swear an oath because he always tells the truth. But God has condescended to also swear an oath for our sakes to make it as clear as possible to us that he will do what he's promised. Well, what kind of a God would stoop to swear an oath to confirm his already absolutely certain promise? The same kind of God who would send his one and only son to die as a sacrifice for our sins so that we wouldn't perish but have eternal life with him. Verse 17 says, Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. In other words, God has done all of this so that we can know beyond any doubt that his intentions, his plans, his purposes, his promises will never, ever change. They can be trusted, relied on. Believed, And what is his purpose, plan, intention, promise? To save us, redeem us, rescue us, make us like his son Jesus, give us a new nature, give us a new life, give us a new future, make us his children, give us meaningful lives. Bring us into his rest. Give us peace and joy now and forever. That's what he's promised to do. The word that captures all of that and more is salvation. What is this hope that's talked about at the end of verse 18? It's the promise that God has made to us. We are looking forward to the salvation that he has promised to us. 
We fl- it says here, we have fled to take hold of this hope. We cling to it. We have seized it, and we never want to let go of it because it's a double guarantee to us by God based on his character and sworn an oath to keep it. The hope being talked about here, it's not, I hope this rope doesn't break or I'm going to fall. That's not a hope of certainty. That's just wishful thinking. And that's not what's being talked about. The hope being talked about here is a hope of certainty, of confidence, of security. I know this rope is never going to break because I know who made this rope and who has secured it. See, it's different. Verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The author gives us two images here of our hope to get across the idea of its certainty and its connection and dependence on Jesus Christ. So first, it says, our hope is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Firm and secure carries that same meaning that's already been communicated to us through this double guarantee of the two unchangeable things of God's character and his oath. An anchor, it keeps a boat from drifting from winds and currents. Without a boat being anchored, it can drift away and be lost seas. At sea, can't it? In a similar way, our hope has a stabilizing effect in our life. The the winds and currents of life are constantly pushing and pulling on us, applying pressure to us, seeking to drag us away, to topple us, to bash us against the rocks. Our hope keeps us anchored to the firm foundation of the promises of the Lord in the middle of this tossing sea of life. Second, this hope, second, this hope enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. This second image, it comes from the tabernacle of the Old Testament. You might remember we talked a little bit about this before. The tabernacle had two rooms. The first frontmost room was called the holy place, and the back most room was called the most holy place. There was this thick curtain wall that divided these two rooms and kept the backmost room, the most holy place, completely separate and hidden from view. The most holy place was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, which represented the throne of God. It was where the presence and the glory of God resided. No one was ever allowed into the most holy place except the high priest and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. When the high priest would enter the most holy place on that one day, there was a very particular set of procedures that he had to follow to prepare himself to enter and then to carry out while he was in the most holy place. If he failed to prepare properly, or didn't do things 
exactly the way they were to be done while in the most holy place, he could be struck down dead by God. As a precaution, the high priest would tie a rope around his ankle so his dead body could be dragged out of the most holy place if he had gotten struck down dead inside because he had made some mistake. That was because no one would dare enter the most holy place, especially after something like that had happened. What a fearful and dangerous thing it was for the high priest to enter the most holy place. That rope tied to his ankle, it was, it was like a lifeline attached to him as he was dangled over the abyss to briefly minister on the behalf of his people. Well, in stark contrast to that, the high priest of the Old Covenant who fearfully would enter the most holy place of the tabernacle, Jesus, our high priest, he has joyfully entered into the most holy place of the real tabernacle in heaven before the real presence of God on our behalf, and he dwells there continually making intercession for us. Our hope is a tether connected to Jesus, which brings us into a place that we could never go otherwise. Rather than us dangling one of our own over a great abyss, we have Jesus bringing us up to the very throne of God, where we can draw near to God with confidence, receiving mercy and grace to help us, as we learned in Hebrews 4.16, the last sentence of the chapter, Jesus says, has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This last sentence leads us into chapter 7, which talks about this special and unique priesthood that Jesus has in the order of Melchizedek, and we'll talk about that next time. Today, in closing... I want to bring us back to where we started today. Christian, let's be imitators of people like Abraham, who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. God has saved us and has promised to continue saving us and to finally save us all through his son, Jesus Christ. God has double guaranteed his promises to us. Take hold of the promises that he's made and let them be an anchor for your life. Nothing in this life is certain and secure. It's all temporary. This life can't be an anchor for our life. Our anchor needs to be in something outside of the chaos of this life. It needs to be in the firm foundation of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Anchor yourself in Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't have that yet. You have not anchored your life in Jesus Christ. You have not received salvation in Jesus Christ. And I I just want to say to you finally today that God invites us all to come. Repent of our old life. 
turning the direction of our life toward him, receiving this new life that Jesus Christ offers to us. Receive salvation. And what we've been talking about today becomes the anchor of your life too. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you for what you have done for us through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the anchor of our hope that we have and the promises that you've made to us, Lord, that are absolutely for sure going to happen. You have said it and you have sworn an oath. It is double guaranteed that we are your children, that we have been rescued, that we have an eternity in heaven, that we will be with you. Lord, I ask that you would continue your good work in us even now, day to day, and grow our peace and our joy. Grow our confidence in your promises. Grow our enjoyment of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.